On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to friend of the Palaver, Dan Sherman. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we welcome friend of the Palaver, Dan Sherman, to discuss his experiences with Marillion. All right, Dan, welcome, welcome to the Palaver. Dan, I think you may have been one of the first friends of the Palaver in terms of correspondence. And yet it's taken us so long to get you on. I feel bad, but I'm glad that you're finally here. I'm glad I am too. It's uh, great to uh, actually see you guys in, uh, see, I'm, I already said something. In the, in the flesh. <laughs> in the flesh. That's in right. Coming, flesh. Right off, yeah. coming right off the Pink Floyd segment. In the flesh just flows right out. <laughs> in the cyber flesh. In cyber flesh. I will say well, that I, I think that of all of the, of the Friends of the Palaver mugs that went out, I do think Dan, you were the only one who sent something back. And that's right. And you you uh you had uh, sent us a picture of an article that you wrote in uh I guess your college mag your college newspaper. High school. That was high school. Oh, it was high school. Amazing. I mean, he basically gets the whole back page. I think we posted this on our website. I think we for did a Genesis and a yes uh review. And you dropped in about five of these um web usa booklets nice that when when uh, unbeknownst to us you know i think we may have mentioned a couple times that you were involved in the web usa but you were a pretty big deal in the whole marillion getup in the usa yes and and yeah and, and actually i asked dan to send me a little bio and i didn't even read it because i was so excited just to to talk we to him jumped but right in we just jumped right in so tell us about being lead scribe and managing editor since high school, I was a music critic for the school paper, and I was also the editor. And uh, so I got to put in whatever I wanted, which was a lot of fun. So it had always been sort of my desire to be a rock journalist, basically. I wanted to write for Circus Magazine or Kerrang! or something oh, like that. Oh, yes. Nice. Yeah. And then as I got older, things changed and so forth. So when the opportunity came around to manage the uh, the web usa it, it was it was like a dream come true because not only am i a rock journalist but i'm a rock journalist for my favorite band you know i get to <laughs> yes. interview these guys i get to do all kinds of stuff and they get free stuff in the mail and whatever so i mean it was a lot of fun a lot of, a lot of really great uh, great experiences I, I feel like this is going to be our whole episode i mean how how did that even happen so first of all, clearly you were the editor because I can't imagine any high school a newspaper putting a, a review of both Yes and Genesis in the same issue. <laughs> but how, we had to fill the space. <laughs> how did this happen? How how did you become the editor, the chief editor of the Web USA? I mean, I'm assuming you were the man. Yes, sir. Um, how did it happen? Uh, I still hear Steve Hogarth's voice echoing. All right, we need to hire Dan Sherman. So. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I followed them around. I got to meet them several times after shows. And, you know, I, uh, there was already a very small club, um, but it wasn't an official web USA. And uh, they were looking for this was this was holidays in Eden. 
uh, tour. So they were looking for a way to uh, communicate more with the fans and get them information that they needed uh, on, on a more local level. And they were also starting to sell the Racket Records CDs and they wanted an avenue to be able to distribute them easily in America without going through the record company, of course. Um, so yeah, every few months I'd get, you know, three or 400 CDs dropped off at the door and then I'd, you know, turn around and mail them out to all the people that ordered them. So it just sort of uh, worked out that way. That is epic. That, I was in the that... right place at the right time, I guess. Wow. Paul, were you buying those CDs? I don't, I don't, I think I was still schlepping over to um, Circuit City and, uh, <laughs> and uh, wall to wall and, and buying them there. Except for, except for, your holidays in Eden, you did get the European version. I don't know where you picked that oh, up. Oh, I, I did. I think I bought that at one at those. Uh, they we used to have in Valley Forge, we used to have those record shows. Uh, oh, on right. the weekend after Thanksgiving. Yep. So, in our like little convention area, Valley Forge, Dan, we would have this these record shows, which I, I don't know if they still even have record shows anymore, but it was like a tradition. After <laughs> they probably did pre COVID. <laughs> yeah. They we they would have them and every like every Friday and Saturday after Thanksgiving we would head to Valley Forge and you that you would go specifically to look for imports and things like that because there would be these people from all over with all these cool different uh, different things so I'm pretty sure that's where I snagged the holidays in Eden. That's a good. So period. it's funny because Mark Anthony K, who does Project Gemini, has a similar distribution setup. I believe. I think he he has like contacts in in uh, uh, the UK and maybe somewhere else and he ships all his his stuff to them and then they they distribute so you were doing that for Marillion right it's for the early days of racket records until about about 1998 they wanted to handle all the distribution right out of England so okay wow Holidays was there a lot Eden of pressure involved with that like when you'd get a shipment and you'd have like a caseload of CDs and and you had to ship them out to <laughs> all these people. Hey, it was fun. You wow. know, just like packaging <laughs> things up. Like the magazines, we published four magazines a year, and they'd all have to get stuffed in envelopes. All the labels would have to get put on it. Stamps back in the day. You know, wow, how about that? You know, so yeah, it was, it was just a fun thing to do. It was a fun little side job. Love it. That's amazing. I didn't make any money at it, but it was a fun job. <laughs> Dan, so that lasted from 1991 approximately till 1998. Yes, yeah, about 92. It was uh, during the American leg of the uh, Holidays in Eden tour. Oh, wow. And so you were there for Brave. So you must oh, yeah. have seen a couple of good Brave shows. Well, they and... didn't tour the States for Brave. No. We remember. Uh, when they came around for Afraid of Sunlight, they they decided to do a lot of brave so that uh we got a taste of it but they didn't tour for brave ah oh, that's heart-wrenching well yeah. did we see them at where did we see them on afraid of sunlight was it was that the chestnut too uh i want to say we actually saw them separately um because i think oh, you were, I you were in, in texas, texas by then I saw them at yeah, the theater of living arts in the rare instance when they actually put seats in the in the um the setup and it was just uh uh like rothery broke a string like on the first song and somebody's amp blew up on like the third song it just was like a it was a, it was like every time i saw marillion at the tla something catastrophic went wrong with the sound and um 
and it was it was a really tough show for them i think but to me i remember what saved it was the whole section of brave that they did um during during that show was unbelievable yeah for afraid of sunlight i think we saw them four times uh once was the closest to you would have been pittsburgh and that was the uh in the afternoon, we held the second uh, WebUSA convention. It was there at Pittsburgh before the show. Uh, we had a lot of giveaways and, and fun stuff, and uh, everybody went in to, uh, for the sound check, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, nice. That's, that's fascinating. And, and boy, there's, there's just so much to talk about here. My brain is kind of melting because, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in this era you know, and, and you're talking about the uh, the Web USA convention and and how that worked out. And, you know, that was what was that? Ninety. What 90 was that? Ninety five. Ninety six. Something like that. And, and and, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the experience that we had with the, the Yes 50 um, fan convention in, in Philly and how fantastic that was. But here again, you know, this is in that era where. You know, and you you talked about it, Dan. You know, Marillion is is starting Racket Records. They're trying to figure out, you know, how to to survive, you know, on their own, um, and and do things differently and engage the fans in a different way. And they were so far ahead of the curve on all of that. It's just amazing. Yeah, it was great to be a part of it back in those uh, early days too. To I see believe it. Developing. I mean, even uh when they transitioned out of uh, out of their manager and started handling things on their own, it was unheard of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was local lore in the palaver over, you know, when they crowdfunded Anarachnophobia. And, you know, I, I've been caught on record saying a bunch of stupid things about that. But in retrospect, it was absolutely positively genius. And, you know, my hat's off to them for that. So you had made mention, Dan, that yes. when when Marillion was was looking for someone to head up the Web USA, that you know you were shortlisted and you were happy because this was your favorite band. So I think maybe we need to wind the clock back a little bit. And all right, how did you get into Marillion? When did you get in? And and you know when did you develop this close relationship that ultimately led you to? to being head cheese for uh, the web USA. Well, when I first heard of the band, I would have never thought that I would ever meet them or anything. So, uh, 1983, I was managing the, uh, the Hawkeye view and every few weeks I would go to the, um, the local library to look for albums to, talk about to share with people to review for the for the newspaper and I just you know thumb through and I'd find a dozen or so that looked interesting and uh for one reason or another if it's a band I knew of or didn't know of yeah, different uh, so I found a script for a jester's tear and my first thought when I looked at it was I think I've heard that name Marillion somewhere I think that they might have played which was probably he knows you know on the radio. And I remember thinking that it's a good jam. You know, I was a very big Rush fan at the time. Rush was number one. So I thought that was, oh, all right, I'll check it out. I looked at the back cover and they listed the, um, the credits 
And it was, you know, Steve Rothery played a Yamaha SG5000 or whatever. Mark Kelly was a Oberheim polyphonic whatever. I didn't know what they were, but I thought that was cool because <laughs> that's what Rush did for moving pictures and permanent waves. They listed all their all their instruments. So, hey, top, top notch for being cool. Okay, so Pete Trawavis was playing the Rickenbacker bass. Why was Chris Squire the singer? You know, because it said Fish was the voice. <laughs> to me, Fish was Chris You know, Yes was already pretty much broken up. Steve Howe was doing the Asia thing. Had no idea what Chris Squire was doing. Was this like a secret side project of his? <laughs> All right, it's worth checking out. So I brought it home, and as soon as I put the needle down, I knew it wasn't Chris Squire. <laughs> it's not Chris Squire. I had no idea what this... It was, it was. I had never heard anything like it before. The way, the way the song started, the way the song developed, uh, Rothery's breakaway guitar solo, just like captured me. That that first side, I I, just, I had never heard anything like it before, and uh, it it captured me from the beginning. So that's where it all started. Wow. So, and was this in? This was in '83 when it came out, right? It would have been in '83. Uh, what I don't remember is, uh, Paul, you were showing that article that I wrote in the Hawkeye View. I, that was also 1983, but I don't remember what month it was. It was the November 23rd issue. November. So it had to have been after that because I would have mentioned Marillion somehow. Um, <laughs> because I actually I actually resigned from the Hawkeye View in December, right around at the end of that semester. I started moving on to doing other things and there was there was a coup going on where the Michael Jackson fans wanted to get rid of me and you know, <laughs> because of what I wrote about the Thriller albums, you know, <laughs> sorry, but I turned out okay after all these years. I know his reputation wasn't so good, but anyway, so I resigned in December and I never actually got to publish anything about Marillion, which always bugged me. I wrote an article about the album and it got shoved in a drawer and I never got to publish it. Mm. So. So it had to have been after in that in that December of 83 time frame, yes. That's amazing. That's that's almost as good documentation as Ken Fuller, but not quite. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I don't have the documentation to back it up, but well, I, I have it all. It's all it's after, all good. after 92, I have a lot of documentation after 1992. So. Okay. okay, so so this this sets the stage perfectly, right? Because we have just finished up doing our redux of the Fish Era Marillion. So we actually did we actually did the five albums. We did um, Script, Fugazi, Misplaced Childhood, um, Clutching at Straws, and we did B sides themselves just for for fun and giggles, which actually turned out to be a, a really worthwhile pursuit. But you're you're literally getting in at the ground floor. So yes. you you fall in love with script for a jester's tear, and you know you wait a year and Fugazi comes out. Now, were you was there any issue with obtaining these records at that point, or were they easily available? And and what were you thinking when Fugazi came out? Like, was it just building on your love of the band? You know, what was that experience like? Well, like the the back cover of Script for a Jester's Tear has a couple of posters there for Market Square Heroes and He Knows You Know. Yep. And I remember sitting there with a magnifying glass. My wife and I were the well, we didn't we weren't married yet, but my future wife, we were looking with a magnifying glass trying to figure out what 
was going on there. And I, I can't tell you how many record stores I called asking for the He Knows You Know album, the Market Square Heroes album, what was going on. I, I you know, I, if only I had written to Steph, Care of the Web, as it says right there. Yeah. With a self-addressed <laughs> stamped envelope. I would have, you know, I look back on those days and it's like, that's one of the reasons why I was glad to start the web usa because you know mm. you always think fan clubs are like eh, fan clubs but it was it was important to get information out you know so mm. so I, if i had written the stuff back in the early days uh, it would have been a lot easier fugazi i found by accident going to a record store i always go right to the m section see if there's something uh something out there because if, if you call record stores nobody knows about them nobody's they're not played on the radio anymore. It's a, uh, you know, uh, and I think I actually found Fugazi when I was looking for a Max Webster album at the time. Because hmm. uh, that's M.A. Hey, there's a Marillion album. Awesome. Brought it home. Hey, they got a new drummer. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, oh, and... we'll get... We'll, We'll get yeah, into Mick Pointer later. Is that is that something that we all did? I it's when I when you said you know go to record stores and you look like I used to do the same thing. I would go to record stores and I would just go to like the Y and look at all of the Yes records and say just I don't even know why I just would like want to see maybe there's something here that I don't know about or and I would go look for the King's X records. Like I would go look for the bands that I already had all the records to. Does everybody do that? I love yeah, it. I love I that still, you said I that. still do it. <laughs> when when I go to that when I go when I go to um, either Half Price Books or that McKay's in Nashville, I do exactly the same thing. I there you know there I've got like my order of things that I go and look for, and then if I've got time, I'll kind of you know filter around the rest. But you know, but th this really speaks to. And we've touched on it, I believe, in our, our Redux episodes and in other places as well. I mean, before the 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 age of the internet, you know, it wasn't easy to know these things existed or to to find out what was going on. We've we've told the story several times. I mean, we got on the train after Fish was already gone, and we didn't even know about it. Um, the 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 tale of Paul and I discovering that is quite. It's sad and funny at the same time. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was a different time. It was you know, and, and you know, we sound like a bunch of old crodgers, but um, but that's the truth. I mean, you didn't have all the information available, uh, you know, at the same time or, or immediately. You had to yeah. sort of figure things out, and and obviously here in North America, it must have even been worse. So it was yeah. how how I managed to find all the twelve inch singles and everything. I, I couldn't even remember where they came from, but they, you'd just go into a store and and there they'd be. You know, after not seeing anything for months, there's something new. So there's something romantic about that. Um, that's that's missing from, you know. Now you just go online and you look at, uh, you know, you go <laughs> Amazon or wherever, and you just keep searching. And even if they're hard to find. It's it's not like it takes any effort, you know. You just keep searching on your phone or your computer. Uh, it 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 really does. It kind of removes some of the joy of that discovery. Like when I first started on my vinyl binge, like virtually every store I went to, because you know, I mean, and even as as recent as a couple of years ago, you know, you didn't have all these vinyl reissues. The only vinyl you could get was used vinyl. 
So you're in these these weird stores and you just never knew what was going to be there. And, and the, you know, when when you'd go in and, you know, someone here in Texas would have just dropped off like four Genesis albums and you're just like, holy crap, awesome. <laughs> okay, you said the G word. Um, <laughs> so I, I, just, yeah. I wanted to make it clear that I was not, well, you could probably tell from the article from the Hawkeye View, I was not a Genesis fan at all. In fact, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, try this band Marillion, they sound like Genesis, I'd be like, <laughs> okay. Because the early 80s, as I think you guys mentioned on a previous episode, was uh, Phil Collins' saturation. Sure. Solo yeah, albums, yeah. you know, hit singles. I, I, I really did not, I really did not like it. Uh, didn't like appreciate it. Uh, having said that, when I first heard Kaylee on the radio, there's a wonderful story about that if you're interested, if we're moving on to misplaced childhood yet. We can, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Okay. It was it was my wedding anniversary. Uh, so that would be August 11th, 1985, one year anniversary. I was at work. I worked in a kitchen. And uh, I said, you know what? It's my anniversary. We're listening to my music today. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no, no, mariach no mariachis, okay? We're going to listen to my radio station today. It's nice. my anniversary. And in Chicago, there was a new radio station uh, that was purporting, it was still an AOR station, but they were trying to imply that they were going to play more like deep tracks kind of things, like, you know, not, not your average, you know, pop rock or whatever. So I said, I'm going to try this new station. So I turned it on, and the first song I heard was Mainline Florida by Eric Clapton. Great, cool song, excellent. Then it was uh, Broken Wings by Mr. Mister. Another good song. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Then it was a Bruce Springsteen song that I don't remember which one it was. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm on fire or something like that. It was one of his slower songs from okay. the early 80s. And then I heard this this guitar that went clink, clink, clink. <laughs> yeah. Clink. And, I, and I'm ashamed to say it, and I know this is going to be on the internet forever. My first thought was, well, that sounds like something Mike Rutherford would play. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. You know, and with no Google at my fingertips, I'm thinking, does Mike and the Mechanics have a new album out? Does Jeff I have no idea what is going on with these guys. It, it, it can't be. And then as, as a song starts progressing, the keyboards and the drums, the bass, I'm like, this, this is way too cool to be Genesis. Huh. And then when the voice started, it was like, there was no way that that was, you know, that sounded like fish to me. Mm. No way. They're not playing this on the radio. There's no way that there's Marillion being played on the radio. you got to be kidding. And then as soon as he said, uh, uh, cherry blossoms in the market square, it, that was fish. There was nobody else yeah. has that. Yeah. Accent, yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was definitive. And have you ever, have you guys seen the movie, that thing you do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the point when the Wonders first get their album on the radio and they're all running around town, green, yeah. that was me. I was running <laughs> around the kitchen. <laughs> they're playing my band on the radio. <laughs> this is my band. This is brilliant. This is the greatest thing. That... <laughs> and everyone's like, what the hell? <laughs> what happened to Dan? <laughs> yeah. So again, you know, this, this, is, this is our anniversary. So we had plans to go out that night. Uh, so about an hour, a half hour or so later, my, my wife calls me from a pay phone at the uh, 
Woodfield Mall, which was near the restaurant I worked at. Oh, I'm going to pick you up in about a half an hour. Oh, yeah, well, we got to get to the record store. we got to get to the <laughs> There's not, They're not playing Marillion on the radio. It was probably Genesis. It was not Genesis. Uh. <laughs> you hear that guitar solo? That's Steve, that's Steve Rothery. There, nobody plays like uh. that. It's it's incredible. we got to go right now. All right, I'm going to pick you up. But, you know, it, it's not Marillion. You know, it's okay. So anyway, so she picks me up and, and uh, has a anniversary gift for me. And you could tell it's a record album. It's 12 by 12 and it's thin. Of course, I opened it up. It was Misplaced Childhood. <laughs> she, had bought, she had bought it an hour before I heard the song on the radio. Get out of town. And she was driving around trying, didn't want to bother me at work, didn't know how to bring it up. You know, you know obviously she was going to rap it and it was going to be a surprise. And... <laughs> I remember I remember getting home and you know we were getting ready to go wherever we were going and I'm reading the lyrics and all the liner notes and all this, what the, this is all and she looks at me and she goes, Are you gonna play the damn thing or what? <laughs> <laughs> so you so she's been involved with this uh you know dealing with me for uh uh with with, with Morillion ever since the beginning. So yeah. that is but, exceptional. <laughs> that's great. When you say I have a problem, it's a certainty, but I can put it all down to eccentricity. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, but, oh, that's such a fantastic story, though. That that there's that a second part my to heart. It. Oh, they're there's okay. They opened for Rush at the Rosemont Horizon, February, March of the following year, 1986, because my son was born in June of '86. And uh, Dana was at least six or seven months pregnant at the time. This this was incredible to me. This was like my two favorite bands in the world on the same stage because I saw Rush on the Grace Under Pressure tour. And on the inside of the uh, tour program, there's a picture from Madison's, Madison Square Garden, which shows Rush and Marillion. And I just thought that was oh. amazing. And that was during the Fugazi tour. But anyway, so... So they have those two guys on stage at the same time was amazing. But that was permanent, not permanent waves. Um, what's the one I don't like? Uh, power Windows? Power Windows. I did yeah. not like Power Windows. I know it's uh. one of your favorites. <laughs> but I, I never could. I never could. After Grace Under Pressure, they just kind of like lost favor because Marillion was taking up all my time. I can't listen to Rush anymore. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and... Um, we were late getting into uh, the concert, getting through security. We were stuck in traffic and I've never been late to a concert since or even before that. And I remember going through checking in security and I can hear them playing lavender. Mm. And um, oh, wow. it's odd because most opening acts save their hit song for the end. You know, here's our hit song. Bye. Here's the people you really want to see. But they did the album from the beginning, which oh, wow. meant that Kaylee was at the beginning of their set. Huh. And I missed the I missed the audience reaction to Kaylee because that would have been their hit song. Although actually, the radio stations were playing Lavender, and believe it or not, Lady Nina, huh. leading up to this tour, those three songs were on the radio like every day. You could hear them. So I missed the audience reaction to Kaylee. We got to our seats at the beginning of uh, uh, the Bittersweet, hmm. you know, and the place the place was quiet, and everyone was like what's going on and there's this humongous guy with a microphone up on stage going a spider wanders aimlessly within the world <laughs> through the shadows and everyone's like what the hell is this and i'm like yeah this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, By gosh. the time they got through to uh, to Blind Curve, there was another quieter part where it's during that perimeter walk section. Everyone was starting to chant for, not me, of course, rush, 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 rush. Right. They were practically booing them off the stage. Oh. And it was, you know, near the end of Blind Curve, it goes, you know, can we say goodbye? And they were they were literally waving, like, we're saying goodbye. We're out. <laughs> No childhood's end or anything. It was it was really depressing to me because it was yeah, like, that's... come on, you guys. I mean, you don't know this band. This, you know, where were you guys back during Fly By Night? Nobody wanted to pay attention to you. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer too. Because I had definitely romanticized them opening for Rush as though it was a big. Uh, you'd think that Rush uh, Rush fans would be uh, a little a little more open minded. I didn't see Rush until Presto tour. And I want to say that maybe Mr. Big opened for them. And that was the last time I ever saw an opening act for them. That's interesting. It's funny that you mentioned that, you know, that sounds like that's one probably one of the few shows that you were ever late to. And <laughs> it always seems to be that way. The show that you always end up being late for is the one where you really want to see the opening act. I, we had a couple of those experiences. And so we left early because... I pretty much wanted to see Marillion anyway. I didn't really want to see yeah. Power Windows. I knew they were opening with big money, like, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> and my wife was, you know, six, seven months pregnant, and yeah. little Kevin was in there bouncing around, and I knew that Rush was going to be louder, and it was just going to, it was yeah. not going to be a good scene. So we, I had really good seats. We were like 17th row off on the side. Wow. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up to the upper balcony and give my tickets to somebody else. Who might want to go down there and get good seats and then we'll leave okay fine first person that comes down the stairs i'm like hey i got these uh really good seats for down there if you want to take them we're leaving and the and the guy says oh no we're leaving too we just came here to see marillion oh man he was from las vegas he flew in from las vegas just to see wow Marillion. it was the closest they could be we ended up talking for a half hour while the band was Wow. Rush was playing and rattling everything. And it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. So, I mean, at that point it was like, that's what I want to do. I want to talk to people about this band. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. I... And then clutching at straws, uh, XRT in Chicago had a syndicated program called rock over London, where they would uh, play what's hip, what's cool coming out of London. And uh, I was, I listened to it from time to time. It wasn't really my, you know, my style mostly and uh then i heard just for the record mm -hmm. of, of all songs the first song i heard from clutching and strongs was just for the record and of course i ran onto a, the record store right away and uh i purchased the cd um i think i've mentioned this to joe in a past message it's like when you bought wish you were here you decided that you were going to get it as a cd that you had to have the CD, even though yep. you didn't have a CD player. Same thing with me. I bought <laughs> Clutching at Straws on CD. It was it was going to be a major, significant purchase. This needs to be on CD, and I didn't have a CD player. I had to go to my brothers and dub it on the cassette. Ah, <laughs> uh, the good old days. I, I don't. Th days. I don't think there's quite the import of a young person deciding what the the first song or track or album they're going to download onto their phone is. No. Yeah. Uh -oh. No. You know, Dan, you're talking about how there were, you know, there were songs being played on the radio every day, right? You, you yes. would hear Lavender, Lady Nina. I have so, to ask, I have to oh, yeah. ask a question of, of Joe and Ken. 
I, like, did Philadelphia just miss the whole boat? Because I listened to FM radio when yeah. I was 16. I never, never heard Marillion. I'm, I'm positive. I never, I never heard Marillion on the radio. The only time I ever saw them or heard them was the, the once or twice I saw the Kaylee video on MTV. That was it. Yeah, I, I, I never heard them on the radio. Okay, we just benefited Sorry, in other ways. I mean, Philadelphia was bonkers for yes. I used to just exactly. they were. I it used to drive me nuts when like when like they the the um the DJs in Philly, who are all great guys, but they would they would uh, like never ever. This is a, after I was you know this was when I was older and I knew about Marillion. They would never ever even mention Marillion. Never play any any songs and then they would be interviewing like like uh tony banks i remember john debella uh, oh, uh interviewing tony banks for a solo album and they played a song that fish sang on and there's john debella who was like a like the big the dj at the time in philadelphia and he's like talking to tony banks like oh yeah fish like he like they're old buddies right and i'm thinking you clown, you've never even mentioned him before. Mm. And and here you are talking like, oh yeah, yeah, him. It's great that you got him to sing sing on the record and all that. Uh, it's just no respect for those guys. Another you murder know. of a day, I think, is what it was called. Is that okay? Mm. Philadelphia was terrible for Marillion. Was it any better? Slightly west and north. You know, they romanticized Montreal. I don't know if that's after the fact. Well, we well, romanticized actually... Montreal. <laughs> Uh, other Our than game. playing at the uh, at the Rosemont Horizon, which is a really large venue, they usually played at the Park West, which was like the it was the cool it was the hip place to play for for the bands. It wasn't the largest, but it was it was it was a large club. They did actually play there on the script tour, um, but I was not either you know both not aware and also too young to be able to go anyway because they serve booze there so you have to be it was 18 and older and, um but i saw them on the season's end and um holidays and eating tours afraid of sunlight strange engine was always the park west where they played hmm. it was a cool place to play so yeah they had people that had never heard of them that just goes to the park west for the heck of it and i go hey they must be a cool band because they're playing here you know nice and we are we know how hip and cool they are actually so so the first the first time you saw them was when they opened for rush and then yes and And the next time was uh season's end i did not see them on the clutching at straws tour i did i had other than having the album i never heard any songs on the radio from clutching at straws it was back to the old marillion vacuum that it was before kaylee Mm -hmm. i found out they actually did tour. I think they were in Milwaukee. I don't know if they were in Chicago or not, um, hmm. but I, I totally missed clutching his straws. And one day, walking to the record store, and here's Thieving Magpie. And I'm like, oh no, something happened. Uh, that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a contractual obligation album if I had ever seen one. You know, the stupid, cheesiest cover with them standing there like that. I, I just... I do, not, I do not like that live album just because of the feeling I got when I Wow! When I saw it, was that something? Something was going on. Yeah, that was it. The band was split up. Never going to hear from them again. And then, of course, you know, seven months later, I get to a store and, and I found Seasons End. 
in and I opened up the sleeve and checked in. Okay, what? Steve Hogarth. I thought Fish's name was Derek William Dick. Did they, <laughs> they hire somebody else? What is going on? So, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, a bit of a, uh, a shock. Because uh, mm. obviously over on the other side of the Atlantic, everybody knew what was going on. It was like major s- stories, but uh, not over here. So it was, it was a bit of a shock. And um, I didn't really listen to the album very much at first. I, I was I was really kind of taken aback. And I just kind of, I, I probably went through it once. Like, okay. Um, mm. But then I saw them at the Park West. And I completely fell in love with you know all over again you know i fell in love with this band all over again because just the way just the way they 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 worked it out they they started with king of sunset town which has a big instrumental beginning so hogarth was not even on stage Mm -hmm. it was just the band i'm like these guys sound excellent this is better than i could have imagined and then the ragged man comes shuffling through and starts singing. I'm like, this guy sounds incredible. Mm. And then mm-hmm. the next song they did was Slimes with Tha. I mean, it's like you're they had the balls to go back and do older songs. The third song was Script for a Jester's Cheer. I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh, wow. Just, wow. just that they had the balls to do that mm-hmm. was impressive. And the way he sung is like, it was incredible. I mean, you go back, it's like, let's, let's just go re-record the other four album with a real singer i mean fish was an amazing lyricist and he was quite a character but he was not a good singer he really i don't really think he was a good singer you know i you know so we we may have touched on that yeah uh so yeah uh i fell in love with the band all over again with season's end and then you know i don't think for the next several years that i saw any other band because i had to save up all my money and drive to Cleveland and drive to Columbus, drive to Detroit and wow. London, Ontario, Toronto. I mean, I saw them about six or seven times on that season's end tour. Wow. Um, Cause wow. I had to. Wow. Wow. Now, what, did and your wife, we, did we your wife accompany you on all of those uh, trips? To, oh to yeah, see them? absolutely. All right. Absolutely. That's good. That's good that for the like marriage. Vacation time. That's great. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of great, uh, a lot of great stories of that era. How did they how did they handle your border crossing when you went to uh Canada? <laughs> to see, to uh, see they were Marillion. trying to get rid of us. They you know, they saw the Marillion shirts and they're like, "Okay, you get you go. We don't want you around here." <laughs> uh-huh. No, I, I just that this was 1990. We had a harder time getting back into America than exactly. we had to Exactly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. They were ready to let us go. Uh, we yeah, had, there's uh, always that suspicious uh return Oh, you were in Canada for what? For why were you in in Canada? And you tell them, and they're like, "Really? That doesn't seem right. Like, who would do that?" Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you went to a concert. So let's search your car for drugs. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. Love it. Which I do want to mention on that topic, uh, Paul. You had said something way back in when you were uh, on your twenty one twelve episode. Uh, and you and you guys have often mentioned about the uh, the height of marijuana consumption in, in the states. I, I just I want to go on record in saying that Prague fans are not all potheads. Okay? I've I've never touched the wacky tobacco. I've never drank alcohol. I've been perfectly clean, but I love the music. So fair enough. Well, there's well, at least one that, of me. 
See, you open the door, Dan. So with that being said, what are your thoughts on Yes's Tormato? We just need to know now. <laughs> uh, the first time I saw Tormato, I was going to a record store to buy Billy Thorpe Children of the Sun. And they had uh, albums up on the wall that you could just kind of look at the covers. And I remembered saying, well, somebody threw a tomato at that one. <laughs> you know, you got to go clean it up or something. <laughs> uh, that was the first time I saw it. I don't think I actually, I didn't buy it that day. Drama was still the first Yes album that I bought. Mm. And then the Yes album was the second one where everything oh. else fell into place. I, I don't know, but uh, uh, I don't think it's awful. Um, I think I've listened to it maybe three or four times straight through. You know, I used to make mixtapes just like all you guys made mixtapes back oh, yeah. in the day. Don't Kill the Whale and the Silent Wings of Freedom were always on the mixtapes. Uh, release, nice. release. I loved Release, Release. I just, I thought it was, I just think it's a good jam. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So those three really stood out. I, I know when you guys did the, uh, the top 10 Yes songs uh, a few months back, um, a, a few of you had put Onward on your list. Ah, yeah. I, I had to go, I had to go back. I didn't even know. I don't even think I had ever heard that song Never before. Listened you know, that it's far. on the album that I allegedly <laughs> listened to. So. <laughs> Too far to the end. I have to ask about Seasons End Live. If you saw five or six mm-hmm. shows, was it the same set? Practically. I don't uh, really take as good notes as Ken Fuller's mom. But um, <laughs> there are people out there that have links where you can get this from different shows um but they all had basically the same set list maybe a, a change here or there but they all had something a different character about them mm-hmm. uh toronto was an open-air stadium uh and it was raining I, I remember for when they started to play the sunset town intro ian was walking out with an umbrella and he's twirling around the umbrella <laughs> like you know singing in the rain or whatever yeah. And uh, I have a picture somewhere that we took of uh, Rothery playing the solo for Seasons End in the rain, and it was it was just oh. that image, you know, when you're talking about environment and stuff. And here, you know, here he is playing in the rain. That was incredible. Um, there was another show in Kitchener, you, you, Paul. I think you mentioned earlier about uh, a lot of things go wrong in Marillion shows, especially in the states. Yeah. Um, so in, in Kitchener, it was the 100th show that they played with Steve Hogarth, uh, which I think part of it is where the song 100 Nights comes from, uh-huh. that it was a, a memory of, of the 100th night. And uh, towards the end of the show, the back line went out. They lost all their amplification. Uh-huh. All, you could hear was, all you could hear was the drums and, and the, um, the guitars off, of, uh, off the stage, but all the back line was gone and they... I remember Hogarth standing up there and saying, would the manager of this establishment please tell the gentleman in back on the bicycle to please pedal faster. (laughs) (laughs) And um, somebody in the back shouted out, uh, you know, play Holloway Girl Acoustic. And and Rothery's like, what? What What did you say? Holloway Girl Acoustic. Holloway Girl Acoustic? Are you crazy? No way. And then, you know, a year later, it came up on an acoustic album with Holloway Girl Acoustics. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, we had, because uh, I worked in a restaurant, and around Mardi, Mardi Gras time, they would pass out masks for all the staff to wear. 
and I got a hold of a half a dozen jester masks, you know, with the whole nice. really <laughs> thing and everything. And uh, since we knew they were playing that song, you know, we I kept them under the table, and then when they started playing, I put the mask on and stuff. Nice. And uh, you know, everyone's looking around, laughing. Oh, this is fun. Okay, yeah, jester, whatever. And then some guy comes up and taps me on the shoulder with a you know with a thick British accent. Um, Son, you mind if I borrow that? <laughs> sure, go ahead. It was John Arneson, their manager. Oh, oh. so from, he, he took it backstage, and he was he was walking around with it backstage, nice. uh, and and he had everybody sign it and everything, and he brought it back to me, and he's like, "Yeah, thanks for letting." And I'm like, "Hey, you guys signed this." <laughs> That's and, awesome. That was amazing. So that was that was sort of the beginning. That was the first time I met him, and and uh, you know, it was. Uh, one of the one of the first seeds that led to the web usa you know it was like wow. somebody he was familiar with us from from that long ago so, yeah all right looking him up he was involved with billy ocean cat stevens a lot caribbean of queen here. wow yeah oh, john arneson yes yes john wanted to call the uh, the fan club the american marillion appreciation society <laughs> it would have worked i'm like huh <laughs> <laughs> So their, was a, their fan club, their fan club was always called the Web since the beginning, and then as it grew in the '90s, they decided to call them all the Web, like the Web UK, the Web Holland, the Web Germany, because they all had different names. Like the French fan club was called Blue Angel, off the part in uh, Misplaced Childhood, yeah, Leon. You know, so I don't remember what the. I think the German one was called the Release after Season's End era, and uh, Holland it was Freaks, it was Freaks Holland. They decided to change them all, make them all the web. So it was the web. It made sense to be the Web USA, not yeah. the American Marine Appreciation Society. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, it would be a map. It just doesn't sound terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you see the budding internet phenomenon? What was the first internet yeah. existence of Marillion? Well, because Marillion.com came out, and it was like they released an album and their website. It seemed. Is that kind yeah. of when did they like notify you and said, okay, cease and desist? Or uh, like, how did that go down? In a way, sort of. It wasn't like, uh, huh. I, I, got a call, I got a call from Steve H. And he says, you know, we're changing things. We're getting rid of John Arneson. We're going to start managing things on our own. And uh, we want to um, we want to, we want to consolidate the English-speaking fan clubs, which is pretty much us in the U.K., yeah, uh, they wanted to consolidate them and have just one English speaking because they were getting too many fan clubs around the world. You know, different languages made sense, but they wanted to because they were developing more into the internet type stuff. They wanted to do the distribution out of England. They were finding that it was getting easier to ship stuff out of England that you don't really have to have an American satellite office doing that for them. That was pretty much it, you know. And and uh, at the same time, after doing it for six years, it was a lot of fun. But meanwhile, I had to work, you know, for a <laughs> yeah. living. And right, yeah. that, right. I was pushing a lot of work aside. I, I had a I had a new daughter in 1997. My my daughter was born. So wow. I had I had family I had family business to, to ah. and, and, and work business and so it kind of came at a good time where with the internet developing more it was easier for fans to get information so they yeah. didn't need to subscribe it was twenty five dollars a year you you saw the magazines that I sent you I mean it's yeah. expensive to print out a thousand of those if you're going to print out ten thousand of them 
it's cheaper per issue. But if you're only doing a thousand, it's really expensive. I mean, these are so beautiful. 20, these are so these are beautiful. Year, yeah. Yeah. The I only mean, way they're... I was able to make a good magazine like that with the color photos and everything was selling the CDs. You know, so we could basically break even. So I'm spending wow. all this time. Yeah. It was, it was a mutual mutual thing they were they were changing things and developing i had other things to do you know we had just gotten out of the the tour fund was for the strange engine tour and uh, what was after that radiation yeah. yeah and then uh and then it was dot com after radiation so it was it was before it was before radiation was released because i think i had a, a cassette promo for that album oh wow and i never actually purchased the cd and, and, and until yeah you know, Radi so Spotify. <laughs> the radiation was one of those um one of those moments where I was in I was nowhere that I would ever normally be, some shopping mall, and I wandered into a record store and I went to the M's and and saw that and I was <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Merlin has yeah. a new album out and I just found it. Um yeah, so that's I, I just I'm trying to think because that is there was there was the tour the, the, for this strange engine right the fans put together a fundraiser to yes. bring Marillion to the US i don't remember i they didn't go everywhere cuz they i don't believe they came to philly um during during that time yeah i remember something like that like there was this there was a there was some sort of tour fund and either it, it didn't happen in its entirety or it didn't happen or something. But I remember something like that, Paul, but of course my memory is terrible. So yeah, I don't remember which towns they played. And I know that they played at the park West cause I was there and it was the only time I saw them on that tour. Uh, my daughter was just born at that time. And there's uh, there's actually a picture on the back of one of those magazines of Rothery holding her yep. as a, as a one month infant, Nice, uh, which, which right. I was able to recreate uh, a couple of years ago, 20 years later, you know? So that was like That's the last awesome. time I saw them for a long time. You know, and, but that was kind of the impetus behind the whole anarachnophobia pre-order, right? They went Marillion.com. Yeah. They started, they started galvanizing everyone around the website and then they realized, Hey, if people are willing to put money together to bring us over across the pond, maybe they're willing to, you know, fund our albums. So that's right. how, where, how involved were you in that fundraising effort for, for that tour? Well, initially when they, they, they there was a, an internet mailing list called the freaks mailing list um, where, you know, this was, pre-Facebook, you know, everyone would get an email every day or whenever somebody would send something. I don't actually remember how it worked because I'm not a computer guy. But um, some they had the idea there, and then Arneson wanted to keep it separate from the fan club. He, you know, he for some reason, because he, he didn't want um, commingling of funds, so to speak. So we need, they needed somebody, which was Jeff Woods, to, to keep whenever people would send in money would go there into a separate fund rather than into the webs. And they didn't want anybody from overseas contributing to this thing. So it was strictly to the mailing list and the American readers. Um, 
it started on the internet, but it, it really took off when, you know, we published an article about it. And a lot of people said that that sort of like legitimized that this was really going to happen, you know, and, right. and then money started, started pouring in and they were able to do the tour and all that excitement stuff. Wow. Nice. Nice. I want to say that during that tour, Tom, who's not with us tonight here, was in California. And I believe that's the tour he, where he saw fish and Marillion back to back. Yeah, he saw Marillion one night and like two nights later, he saw fish in the same venue in L.A. <laughs> and I, I want to say that that was that basically converted Tom into a fish fan for wow. for life. Yeah. And I wouldn't I don't even know what album that would have been. That fish would have been. I don't even know how fish would have been touring at that point in time. And, um I know he did tour around that time. I never saw him. I have actually only seen Fish on that misplaced childhood tour. Wow. I've never seen him solo at all. And um, I've interviewed him once, but uh, I've never I've never seen him play live. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. The interview was, was very interesting because uh, um, when Brave was released, the record company put a sticker on the front with my phone number on it. I don't know if you guys bought Brave from the record store at all during that time wow. so there was a there was a sticker on there it was 708-213-0098 called web fan club you know we were able to get uh irs to do that wow and uh so i got all kinds of fun crank calls i mean you have no idea how many <laughs> how many scottish uh lame american versions of scottish actors there were to the point that when fish actually called and left a message to prepare for the interview i was like well he sounds pretty good you know must be the real guy. <laughs> wow yeah i never called I, I i mean i did pick that cd up that was in the the circuit city days of uh, cd shopping but I, I i'm pretty sure i just ripped the packaging off and and dove right into the record yeah <laughs> Oh, did you get legitimate oh, calls? No, we, we, did, we did get a lot of legitimate calls, not just crank calls. And a lot of the crank calls were people I already knew. So, like, I could tell that, that they were just <laughs> calling to mess with me. Because, you know, and they would make it part of, like, they were leaving a message for me, but then it would be like, the spider won't the same. Thing, whatever. You know? so, so, the uh, content for um, the web, US, were they sending you uh, material and you were typesetting it? I mean, was it a, a breakdown of stuff from the band and stuff that you derived yourself? It was sort of a combination of a lot of things. People that were members would send in letters, you know, with their opinions and stories about seeing the band on tour. I would do interviews with various band members from time to time and compile newspaper clippings. I'd get photos. Uh, photos were sent in by a lot of different people. I've got a whole banker's box full of uh, four by seven photographs thousands of them wow uh, yeah people would send me stuff and you know every once in a while uh before every issue hogarth would you know he he uh he published his diary a while back yeah so he would actually hand write out and then fax it to us because there's a diary clipping this is way before he even thought of publishing them it's just like oh this would be a fun thing to do i'll just write this out here yeah, I was going through Colorado and, you know, and he would just fax it to us. And then I would retype set that faxes in those days were the big roll that was like mm -hmm. pressed or whatever. Right. Wow. So they, they would send stuff in the other fan clubs. The Dutch fan club was amazing. 
amazing. I mean, those guys would send me stuff all the time. When I first started, I actually got like a welcome package from them. Hey, welcome to the Marillion Fan Club world. Here's a whole bunch of albums that you've never heard before. And here's a whole bunch of pictures. So they sent me all kinds of stuff. Sweet. It was a lot of fun. They, they had a cartoonist. They had a, a cartoonist that would do all these satire cartoons. There's probably some examples in those issues there, that I sent there you are. right there. There are, yeah. I think, yeah. I used there. one of them for a t-shirt when we did the Afraid of Sunlight convention. I used one of the cartoons for the front of the shirt. It has the cartoon of Hogarth standing in front of the other four. And he says, what do you mean you're afraid of spotlights? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the front shirt, you know, the, the shirt. So it's a lot of fun stuff. The thing with some of these that I don't, I never really, I never really got to appreciate strangely, even, you know, cause I'm looking at, like I saw them in 96 but like, you know, like I see a picture like this one here. And that would have I, been sent to me by the record company. They would yeah. send promo pictures. Yeah. yeah. I just I I it never like I never thought of Steve Hogarth as like a rock star, you know. But then I see <laughs> some of the pictures in here and I'm like, damn, he was he was Are a, you kidding me? He was they, a bona fide rock star. Oh, they sold him so hard in the early days. Oh. They did, but I just feel like I never, it never, like, you know, maybe I was just interested in other things, but, but, um, that's funny. I mean, the whole, what is it? The ridiculous cover my eyes video where he's like got the wet hair and he's yeah. gazing into the camera and you're like, oh, geez. Yeah. But we all know that Steve loves that kind of stuff anyway. He's, uh, He's very dramatic. His big fluffy guitar strap, which is fantastic. Uh, I, I I still I can't get over the fact that you know watching <laughs> watching the uh, the couch convention and I, I made the point uh, I think here amongst ourselves, but I'll just I'll make it again because it, it just cracked me up. Steve Hogarth, who you know if you totaled up the amount of time he plays guitar, it's probably like. 15 minutes over the three shows and he has more guitars and <laughs> yeah, exactly than, than rothery does it just yes. cracks me up well around the brave uh time uh rothery wanted john wesley to be a second guitarist on tour because wow. there was just so much going on and he wanted west and they they said no we, we were just going to keep with the five and you know hogarth is like oh I'll play you know I'll pick up a guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He, he talked about he that in the that Corona Diaries. I mean, know, he, he, he liked it more as a prop as an actual instrument. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, and, and I, I can, I can kind of remember hearing him talk at some point and I don't know where I heard it or wherever, but I, I remember hearing him, you know, discuss having to sort of figure that out. Cause that wasn't necessarily what he did. And, you know, I, I, th- Based on on you know what we saw on the couch convention and some of those those recordings, I think he's, he, I mean, he's never going to set the world on fire, but I think he's really come a long way. And I think he, mm-hmm. and, and I don't, I don't, you probably know more than I do about the sort of discussions that go on the band. But it seems to me, at the very least, that that H understands when it's important for him to pay attention to that and when he can use it as a prop, you know. Because I, I I imagine Rothery probably has some pretty pretty significant ideas. Yeah, that's great, Steve. But no here you really need to play this. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he he mentions in the Corner Diaries like 
uh, Rothers I think, point to the frets and tell me what to push. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I actually witnessed that at a, at a sound check once. Pete was looking at him kind of funny, and I think Rothery went over and like moved his finger over here. Uh, <laughs> hey, man. And the feel is awesome. what counts. Yeah, the first interview I did, Arneson set it up for me to talk to Steve Rothery, which is like my guitar hero from my childhood. And uh, Steve Hogarth called. And somewhere I have a recording, and it was like, uh, hello, Dan, this is Steve. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, well, <laughs> I was expecting Steve Rothery. He's like, oh, he's at the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and even the community like you're speaking of the community when i when i saw them uh, a few years back it's, it was the first time in 20 years that i had seen the band and you know i got there early and i was trying to talk to people hey where are you from you know how many times have you seen them you know i didn't give them my name or anything but it was, it was just oh you're from st louis oh i saw them in 92 in st louis at the mississippi nights oh great show yeah so nice do you do you have like your own sort of Facebook group or you know email chain of Marillion fans that you've collected? Not really. There's <laughs> there's a few there's a few people on uh, the Marillion and fans Facebook group who who know me from the days. I don't know if you're a member of that group at all or not. No, I know. Yeah, I think I'm going to go sign up for it right now. I was like social media distant. I don't I don't want to go down rabbit holes. You know, so I, I, I stood away from it. Then when my wife went to have surgery four or five years ago, it was like I needed to get on Facebook so I could communicate with, you know, family members. How's she doing? What's going on here? What's happening here? So it got me into Facebook and, and, the, and the, oh, there's a Merlion thing on Facebook. Okay, <laughs> check this out. And, and then I saw a, a message from a, from a lady and, and she said, does anybody know what happened to Dan Sherman? Where's Dan Sherman? And I, and I, I'm right here. I'm right here. <laughs> wow. After not being, you know, in communication for 20 years, you know, yeah, I'm right here. <laughs> so, so Paul, you had made mention of the community and, and Dan's obviously plugged in there. I, I'm curious. I'm imagining that you have some or many experiences with Marillion conventions. And then specifically, <laughs> did you by any chance happen to be at the 2007 Marillion convention in Holland? Uh, no, I never went to any of the weekends because that was in my during my 20 year hiatus. Okay, um, but I hosted the first two conventions. The first one is was in uh, was for the uh, it was a Brave pre uh, launch party yeah. that we we held in the Chicago oh. area. And um, that's a good one to do. Sure, it, it was. It was uh, got a lot of great Brave stories. But uh, oh. uh, Ian Mosley was living in Florida at the time. Uh, and so it was Wes. Was? So they flew up. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, so they flew up for the convention, you know, from Florida into Chicago in January, you know, when it's 20 below. And, uh, you know, Wes did a set. And uh, nice. we, I had a, um, I had a, fr a friend of mine uh, is in a band, was in a band that uh, was that did progressive covers, Genesis, yes, Marillion and stuff. And uh, so Ian sat in with them playing Kaylee. You know, with the opposite-handed drum kit, I remember him saying that. Uh, so it was a lot. Of, that was you know, and, and and debuted the um, um, the Brave album, which is before it was released. Wow! Uh, Ian brought that 
we had all the lyrics because they had faxed me all the lyrics. I had like 10 miles of fax paper ah. with all the lyrics. So I printed that out so people could could uh, could read around. Wow. I remember um, I had uh, fortune cookies made up uh, custom with lyrics on the inside. Wow. You know, That's like awesome. a blind eye sees the fragile vandalized, you know, which sounds like what you'd read in a fortune cookie, but it's yeah. a lyric from the album, you know, so nice. I had examples like that stuck them in there. So, so that was, that was the first convention ever. That was a lot of fun there. Um, what, uh, so Dan, we, we've, we've talked extensively about, about the length of time it's, it took us to sort of comprehend brave and we've pontific <laughs> we've pontificated how long it may have taken the the general Marillion community to comprehend the fullness of that. What was that like? They sort of debuting that record for the first time to an unsuspecting crowd of Marillion fans. Can I guess? Did, did you just play Hard as Love over and over again? <laughs> no, we, we played the album straight through. Um, and... Uh, they they were everyone was amazed nobody was like every, like what did you say a few moments ago about what's going on nobody was like what's going on everyone was like this is the most incredible thing they've ever done wow and and it's and it's 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 odd a little for me because the first time i heard brave was um i was at ian mosley's house and he gave me a cassette of the album and he said okay drive around in your car, listen to this album, and then come back, we'll talk about it. Because we want to cut one of the songs to make it shorter. And so we drove around and... Um, Did you have to constantly got... adjust the volume while you were driving around? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Uh, there, and so anyway, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Sorry. Just ignore that. Ignore that. When it all fades out at the end of the great escape and falling in the moon, I thought that was the end of the album. So, so wait, I'm I sorry. I rewind and started over and I get, and I get back. I had no idea. Okay. All right. Go ahead. So, sure. well, well, so there's the dual cut. Like they, there were two endings, right? So which ending did you have? Um, well, this, this was, this was pre-release again, but there, they didn't, they didn't uh, release it on vinyl yet. I mean, this, okay. this was before it was even released on CD. But had they? Did they have the made again ending already, like in there, and or or? Uh, it, it was there, but I didn't hear it. So the first okay. time, I, I thought I was listening to the whole album. Went back to Ian's house, and he's like, "Okay, um, we want to cut out one song. Uh, Mark and I want to get rid of Alone Again in the Lap of Luxury." Like, what do you think, Mark? Of all people, that's his like that's his like shining moment of backing vocals. Yeah. He wants wow. to get rid of "Lap of Luxury," and 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 Ian made a, a custom where it goes from, yeah, it, it goes it goes from the Hollow Man into now wash your hands, huh? Yeah, he's and he's like and he was like, what do you think of that? How does that sound? And I said, I think you should cut out Hollow Man, and just Ooh. go from Heart Is Love right into Lap of Luxury. Oh, no, Hogarth will never want to get rid of Hollow Man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was the, that was the first time I heard the album. The next time was was later that day in in the studio. Uh, John Wesley was recording his first uh, solo album, 
uh, with Mark Kelly producing. Okay. And uh, they went to take a break, and Mark had a dad and, and put it right in the studio, off, off the studio machine, and said, you know, turn the lights off, you know, and have at it. You know? so nice. That was, that was pretty. So then um, the next time was at the convention, which was in January in Chicago, like I mentioned. So, so to this day, I mean, Made Again is still special to me in that way, that it was like a surprise, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I did eventually hear the happy ending, yeah. Nice. Okay. Wow. Wow. Oh, and then they did it with the grooves in the record. Was that the, the story? Yeah, it was that 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 double cut groove. Double cut. Yeah. Don't know how that I works. Have, I have a couple of those if you, any of you guys want some. So. How does that work? Do you have to adjust the needle or what? You you put the needle down, and it starts with the Great Escape, and you have no idea Word. until you get to the end whether you made again or you hear a bunch of rushing water waves going on. Really? That's yeah, awesome. so there's no there's no way for you to say, okay, I want to hear the mate again. You can't. See? It wouldn't do it. It's just like you don't know till you get to the end whether. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, Dude, I, definitely, I, def I definitely, I definitely want to, I definitely want to score one of those if I can. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Let yeah. us know what we need to do. We'll, we'll yeah. take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have I have two at least. Uh, I'm not sure if I have more than that, um, but I'll I'll check. I just yeah. so it's it's funny. Were you I, sharing the mag? Paul, did you share the magazines with the other guys too? Or I, I didn't. I had always intended to, but I've I've hogged uh -huh. them up all myself. Uh, okay, so I still I still have them. But, the, I, but I've got I've got extras. I can send them off to the other but, guys too. But the uh, the intention is definitely too. Ken and I are arranging a uh, a sort of socially distanced uh, exchange on Interstate ninety five. Uh, where I'm well, I guess I don't have to give you a base anymore. But yeah, there I was going to say, Ken already got a base. <laughs> a few items, I, a few items that I need to exchange. But um, what kind of what kind of base are you giving away? Well, I was I'm not. I was just going to lend him one of my my Ibanez uh, RG base because he needed one. But he he went and, and picked one out himself and got a much <laughs> much better version. So uh, I've uh, got a Fender. I got a Fender Jazz base that I love, and I also just recently ordered a, a Hofner Club ooh. base. Nice. Uh, nice. Uh, short scale and all that. I, 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 it hasn't shown up yet, so I'm kind of waiting. Oh my! Yeah, that goes. And um, that is exciting. You mentioned earlier about uh, how the progressive rock community is, is always so open to sharing and so forth. It's also the most opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, this is true. Um, as, as my admiration for Marillion developed, I kind of saw, and I, I started learning about other progressive bands. I kind of saw them as being almost like, um, they're like an emissary. Around the time I discovered them, there's also Stevie Ray Vaughan came out in 1983. Mm. And he was kind of like an emissary for the blues world. You know, yeah. you look at, you know, who's Freddie King? You know, you go back and look at, you know, all these songs that he's playing. So Marillion was kind of the same way. If it wasn't for Steve Rothery saying Andy Latimer is like my favorite guitar player, I modeled my guitar playing after David Gilmore and Andy Latimer. You know, so Peter Ravis told me to check out Caravan in the Land of Gray and Pink. That's where he gets that's where he gets his bass tone from. That he was trying to emulate Richard Sinclair. Nice. You know, so they were like emissaries. It's like if you, you, I would never have heard of any of this other stuff, which gets back to the G word in a way. You know, as you know, I. I never would have heard the Peter Gabriel era stuff if it wasn't for Marillion fans. Yeah. So it worked in reverse for me, where a lot of a lot of uh, English fans probably started with Genesis, moved in, you know, moved into Marillion. 
I, I was the reverse. I had a friend that came that worked with my wife. We kind of had a smackdown where she's like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to bring you a Genesis album and you play me a Marillion album. And I played Misplaced Childhood. She thought it was great. She played um, Selling England by the Pound. I was like, mm. are you kidding me? I've been wow. missing this, you know? Yeah, so, right. Yeah, so so it worked the other way. So they were like emissaries. I, I, I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, Dan, with, with you know, the the wealth of experience that you have with this band and i feel that we have only at this point just barely scratched the surface on all of this so i i, I definitely think um you know we need to find excuses to come back and, and revisit this if we do an entire episode just on brave or or whatever else we have to do um but i i do definitely want to to thank you for for reaching out making yourself available i i think this is this is such a, a great sort of addendum to our our revisit of the fish era Marillion. And, and it's, it's been a pleasure to sort of, you know, finally quote unquote, meet you as it were. And uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah, definitely, definitely appreciate you, you reaching out. Yeah, I'm glad to be a part of it. As I mentioned, when I first found out about you guys, I was looking to see if Rothery had a podcast and yours came up. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's it's always been something I'd been interested in doing is getting getting involved and telling stories and having fun and talking about the band. Yeah, I mean, it's and and it's one of those things, you know, we we've all sort of talked about, I think, as we've and certainly as we've we've developed our our technique on on the podcast here, as we go through these segments and the way we we dig in and we look at at these records that we've known for years but we look at them in a slightly different way and you can learn things and kind of change your experience. And, you know, sometimes that's, that's good. Sometimes it's bad, but you know, now when I go back to Marillion and when we did the, the, the fish air Marillion, I couldn't help myself. I had, you know, I, I went back and, you know, I listened to season's end. I listened to holidays in Eden. I always listened to brave. I actually went and, and purposefully listened to, to .com, which I don't think I had ever done you know, specifically to do that. And, and, and there's just something about this band and this music. It, 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 it just, it connects with me and I think with us and, and this, this community, everything about it is just spectacular. And um, I have such fond memories of, of seeing them. And, you know, we've made jokes that I've, I've, you know, logged ridiculous amounts of miles to see this band because they've, you know, the, the 25 years or so I've been in Texas, they've been here once. So, <laughs> but I've seen, I've seen Marillion a lot in the meantime. So it, it's just, it, it, I love, I love being able to connect and, and to have someone, you know, who hangs out at Ian Mosley's house. That's, that's right. not bad. <laughs> and, and I love, I love the, the fact that your wife has been with you on this journey and been integral to it. That, that I think is just such a special part of this as well. So very cool. She should be credited. I think the um, in the magazines, I think I had her credited as the voice of reason. That's how that's how I, I figured she was involved because I did see her. Yes, associate editor, graphics design, and voice of reason. Voice yep. of reason. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. So um, now, all right. Well, thanks, Dan. So Dan, thank you so much. We look very much forward to having you back on the Palaver in the future. 
And yeah, um, to. yeah, so, uh, you know, for all of our listeners, if you have any thoughts, comments, questions uh, about Dan, his experiences, any of your own experiences about anything that we've talked about or anything Marillion or Progressive Palaver related, please reach out to us. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at Prague Paula on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, a whole bunch of other places wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Welcome to this bit of bonus material. I'm Ken Gregory for Progressive Palaver here with a Dan Sherman record review for Script for a Jester's Tear. As you know, Script for a Jester's Tear was released in March of 1983. And by December of that year, Dan had discovered the record and was poised to release his record review to his high school newspaper. However, the onslaught of Michael Jackson fans taking creative control of said publication resulted in Dan's material being suppressed for 37 years. Here at Progressive Palaver, we are delighted to give this material the light of day. The Hawkeye View, December 16, 1983. Please note the subtext in the left side of the page. It's Dan's list of the very best albums for 1983. Number 11, Asia, Alpha, hysterically written as Alfalfa. Number 10, Yes, 90125. Number 9, Michael Schenker Group, Built to Destroy. Number 8, U2, War. Number 7, Brian May and Friends, Starfleet Project. Number 6, Saga, Heads or Tails. Number 5, Rush, Signals. Number 4, Blue Oyster Cult, Revolution by Night. Number 3, Sammy Hagar, Three Lock Box. Number 2, Triumph, Never Surrender. And number one, Dan Sherman's best of 1983, Marillion's script for a jester's tear. And with that introduction, here is my dramatic reading of Odds Are Marillion 2-1 by Dan Sherman. Well, here it is, the last record raid of 1983. Maybe even the last of my infamous Hawkeye View career. It has been my tradition to print a Christmas record buying list for you all before the break, and this year is no exception. The only difference is that rather than write a half page about 10 records I recommend, I will write about one record that I think everyone should go out right now and buy. Drum roll, please. Script for a Jester's Tear by Marillion. That's tear. As in crying, not tear as in ripping. But first, a little background on this amazing discovery. I found it in the library during my usual skim through the record racks in, of course, the M section. The cover first caught my eye. It was facing me in the bin. And the name of the band stirred a memory bank. I recalled the voice of Sky Daniels WLUP Radio, saying it together with the next big thing to come out of England before playing a song. 
The cover is a real attention grabber, very dark and moody, a tearful court jester, hence the title, is playing the violin in a rotted shack, apparently trying to write a song with the words to yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away on his violin case. Very poetic, as in Edgar Allen, almost suicidal. The back cover has posters of what appear to be other album covers by Marillion. I always check the liner notes. It's my job. And it's interesting how they list the manufacturers and models of their instruments, not just so-and-so, guitar, keyboards, etc. I don't recognize any of the names. The voice listed is just plain fish, which is unusual. I've heard Chris Squire's voice many times. And this is definitely not his. Besides, he's busy at the moment. I stopped at M and headed home. Anyway, that's it for background. That's all I know. I don't know if this is their first album or their tenth. Sky said next big thing. So it could be the first. But then again, some people think Equinox is Styx's first album. And what about those posters? Are there more albums? Well... Back to this album, it's not every day that I fall in love with a new album the first time I hear it, but it happened in this case. The title track starts off with a quiet, almost spoken intro, so here I am once more, and slowly builds up as the poem progresses. One more experience, one more entry, in a diary self-penned, yet another emotional suicide, overdosed on sentiments and pride. This is heavy stuff. Too much, too soon, too far to go, too late to play. The game is over. Then the band kicks in. Very minstrel in the gallery-ish. With all the jesters and stuff, I can see the Jethro Tull influence. Cool. A minute later, the guitarist, Steve Rothery, cruises into this fantastic breakaway solo. All right, he's not flashy like Eddie Van Halen or Brian May or as brilliant as Steve Howell. But this solo and others you'll hear rival some of the best from Buck Dharma, James Young, Martin Barr, and possibly even Michael Schenker. The song soon quiets down for another whispering section, similar to Yeses and You and I, before rising back up again, at this time at a slower pace than the solo section, the song has a lot to offer in the eight minutes or so. Interesting arrangements, great transitions, wonderful lyrics, real progressive rock at its finest. Here's a song by song account of the rest of this interesting album. He Knows You Know, shorter, rockier than the first song, but quiet choruses kind of goes back and forth. Could be the song I heard on the loop. Fantastic solo. A kind of trade-off between Rothery and keyboardist Mark Kelly kind of like the guitar, flute, organ stuff from Thick as a Brick, or Saga's Worlds Apart. The Web, another fantastic long piece of work. I can't make out much of the vocals, no lyric sheet, darn, but the music is just fabulous. It starts up with a phone ringing like the end of Young Lust, and when someone answers, hello, Fish yells, don't give me your problems, and slams the phone down. Then Marillion slams some orchestrated chords of their own. The music, when it gets rolling, is very relaxed and free. 
Marillion don't seem to be tied down to making every note perfect, like Rush's recent problems. Yet it all seems right on target. Rothery and Kelly each take an extended solo here, very loose and airy, great for cranking up and flying down Mundhank Road. The second side starts with Garden Party, with swirling keyboard sounds amidst a recording of what seems to be obviously a party going on. Probably in a garden somewhere. Another punchy rhythm reminds me of Led Zeppelin's Custard Pie. Again, the choruses are quieter than the verses, which is different. But this one gets tedious, whereas He Knows You Know works great. Then Mark Kelly flies off the keyboards again as the band rocks out at the end. The lyrics are hard to make out again. It seems to be about, well, a garden party and everyone having fun, doing whatever they do at garden parties. Lying on the grass, drinking champagne, kids playing, people effing, well, having lots of fun. The next song is Chelsea Monday. Reminds me of Time from Dark Side of the Moon. Time. It never ends. Forgotten Sun starts with someone tuning a radio, like Wish You Were Here. The person finally finds the right station and the song kicks in. Fish is screaming a lot in this tune, something about a sniper and dog tags. It's kind of awkward. Then Rothery starts to play a great riff. It's drowned out by fish and some radio announcers simultaneously shouting a verse about parents that don't care about their children. The only thing that could save this now is another fabulous instrumental break and voila. Instant instrumental. Goes for about two minutes, quiets, and starts into some kind of militaristic war chant. It closes with a melody similar to the end of the title track ties the album together. All in all, the second side starts to slide off in excitement, as with most bands. They put the good ones first. But the end of Forgotten Sons makes up for it in a rousing climax. So, to sum it all up, it's a very unique, interesting album. Musically, Marillion lies somewhere between Jethro Tull, Rush, and Pink Floyd, wherever that might be. The album has a lot of changes in tempo and melody, atmospherically similar to 2112, which is pretty good company in my book. Like, if you went spelunking in a cave for 2112 and secret treaties, and on the way back, you picked up the wall and permanent waves. The only real problem I have is no lyric sheet, because Fish has a strange voice and singing style, and it's hard to hear what he is saying. What I can hear are well-crafted stories that seem to paint pictures sometimes sinister, a vagrant's Neil Peart, if you will. The music and lyrics mold together almost perfectly to make an exquisite work of art. Bassist Pete Trewavis has some nice bass lines, like Chelsea Monday. He gets no complaints. Drummer Mick Pointer is okay, but as a rhythm section, they don't rock out quite enough. Marillion have a very full sound, but the drums need to drive the song. The guitars and keyboards seem to be moving slightly ahead of the music at times. But if this is their first album, they have a great talent, and I'm sure they'll improve.
that's my pick for the album everyone should own. It's a great one, maybe my favorite of the decade. Editor's note here. Dan Sherman goes on to foreshadow his demise as managing editor of the newspaper. And he indicates that he is a graduating senior at this point anyway. It's very interesting that Dan Sherman, after his first few listens of Script for a Jester's Tear, nearly predicted the percussion change in Marillion that we now know as McPointer, potentially Jonathan Mover, eventually arriving at President Ian Mosley. Very interesting also, Dan Sherman seems to pan Garden Party, now the brilliant staple of the live Marillion experience. He wasn't quite on board with that track in its original form. Stunning. You may have some other experiences with Marillion. You may be shaking your fist at Dan's review or just laughing in stitches. Whatever it is that you experienced here, thanks for writing with this additional bonus material. Cheerio. I still had no idea that Made Again even existed. Wow! Yeah, you know, I thought the album was—I thought the album was over, and I'm like, okay, let's start cleaning up. And, and Ian was like, well, no, 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 there's one more song. <laughs> <laughs>